This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. As always, you can subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. And if you'd like to, you can also leave us a rating and a review. Now, romance is in the air because Valentine's Day is on its way. So we're focusing our attention on a selection of love stories that played out at English heritage sites. Joining us to talk us through these true romances are curator of collections and interiors, Eleanor Matthews. Hello there. And Properties Historians team leader, Dr Andrew Han. Hello there. So, Andrew, let's begin with the most talked about and well-documented love affair of the Victorian period, that of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, of course. Victoria was an English princess and Albert a German prince. How did they meet and develop their relationship? Well, this is quite an interesting one because it was effectively, they were set up on a on what you could always describe as a blind date by her uncle, King Leopold I of Belgium. So the pair actually first met in 1836, and that was when Albert travelled over from Germany to London for Princess Victoria's 17th birthday. And, and this had effectively been engineered by King Leopold, who he was trying to get them to marry, and he thought it'd be good to sort of introduce them and see what happened. And he had some interest in this because Albert was the son of Leopold's brother, Ernest I, Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. So it was a sort of dynastic blind date. We know that Victoria was impressed by Albert because she writes in her diary soon after meeting him, Albert is extremely handsome. His hair is about the same sweet colour as mine. His eyes are large and blue and he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. But the charm of his countenance is his expression, which is most delightful. So you get a really good impression that she certainly found Albert attractive. And she writes to Leopold again, thanking him for introducing them and, and saying that he has a most pleasing and delightful exterior. But despite all this, she's determined not to rush into marriage. And really, it was two and a half years later that she finally let herself fall for Albert. In fact, they didn't actually meet again for two and a half years. And during this time, Albert was writing many times to Victoria and they were exchanging letters, but they didn't meet again until October of 1839. That's a sort of long-distance relationship before it's even a mainly physical one then. Yeah, they were clearly communicating a lot and obviously had an attraction to each other, but they didn't engineer another meeting until 1839. So who proposed to whom? And well, how much of an insight do we get into the couple's private life through Victoria's journal? 
It's actually quite unusual that actually Victoria proposed to Albert. And this was, of course, according to royal protocol, she was more senior than him as being monarch, whereas he was a, a prince, so the younger son of a, a small principality in Germany. So she had the upper hand, and so it was up to Victoria to propose. And of course, Albert accepted. And this uh, proposal happened only five days after their second meeting in October of 1839. So they obviously decided by this point that uh, they wished to marry. And Victoria's own diary entries, can we get good information from, from these? You can indeed get some really interesting insights into the couple's private life from the Queen's Journal. And this is despite the fact that many of the later volumes of the journal were sort of doctored by her daughter Beatrice after she died. And that was to remove anything particularly controversial or racy. She sort of copied them all out. But we've still got some of the earlier journals, and those are the ones obviously when Victoria and Albert first met. And through some of these early journals, you get really sort of vivid details of their courtship. For instance, the entry for the day in which Victoria proposed to Albert. She writes in her journal that that evening, we embraced each other over and over again, and he was so kind, so affectionate. Oh, to feel I was and am loved by such a, an angel as Albert was too great delight to describe. He is perfection, perfection in every way, in beauty, in everything. I told him I was quite unworthy of him and kissed his hand. Wow, that's strong stuff. Certainly you get an idea about the affection that she feels for Albert and the fact that she's actually, you know, writing this all down in her journal and, and you know, you sort of wonder what was in the journal and some of the later editions that's now no longer accessible. But uh, yeah, certainly some interesting stuff in there. So these early journals are more credible, I suppose, compared to the later ones if they were redacted by her daughter and then rewritten in her daughter's hand. There's more sort of emotional intensity to them and there's more, yes, there's more detail. The other journal entries are still very, very useful in, in terms of understanding Victoria and Albert's life, but these early ones are particularly good, yes. How passionate was their love then, both positive and negative? Well, I think, you know, as that last example illustrates, they were a very passionate couple and letters between them too show that their desire for each other was very real. And this is Albert writing shortly after the engagement. He writes, I need not tell you that since we left, all my thoughts have been with you at Windsor and that your image fills my whole soul. Even in my dreams, I never imagined that I should find so much love on earth. So, you know, you get this idea that they really are very passionate about each other. And like most couples, though, obviously, they had their arguments and disagreements. And we know, for instance, that Victoria was prone to having temper tantrums and mood swings. And this was sort of well known within the court. We now sort of think possibly looking back into her life that it was possibly due to um, her suffering from postnatal depression, because we know that she had nine children in all and seven of those within the first 10 years of marriage. So she must have been pregnant a lot of the time or, or just having recently given birth. So that must have put some strain on their relationship. And Albert could also at times be a little bit cold and distant, and he tended to throw himself into his work to avoid confrontation. So if there was something that was troubling him, he would just throw himself into his work to try and avoid it. But at the same time, there's this sort of sense that Victoria felt slightly sort of intellectually inferior to Albert and morally inferior to him. And there's this she had this sort of inferiority complex. The historians have discussed, does this stem from the fact that there was this unusual anomaly of her being a woman on the throne who was superior in rank to her husband and whether Albert, in his frustration at not being king, 
maybe sort of became more sort of domineering in their private lives and made her feel a little bit inferior. It's a difficult one to get around, but we do know that as well as the lighter moments, that there were problems in their, their relationship as well. Exactly how many children did they have? They had nine children in all. This is despite the fact that Victoria actually disliked pregnancy and childbirth and she found babies and young children distasteful. She really didn't like them at all. She was very quick to sort of fob them off on, on nursemaids and governesses. But I mean, also, in other ways, you could argue that Victoria and Albert were sort of more modern parents in the way that they were far more involved in the lives of their children than previous royals. I mean, for a lot of periods of history, children were basically, as once they were born, they were taken off and brought up by others and saw very little of their parents. Whereas that wasn't the case of Victoria and Albert, particularly when they were staying at their private residences like Osborne and Balmoral. At Osborne, of course, the royal couple enjoyed playing with their children on the beach or going down to the Swiss cottage to see them down there. They also walked in the gardens. The Queen loved sketching the children as they played. As in her sketchbooks, there were lots of sort of illustrations of the children there over a number of years. And also they did things like putting on family theatricals and those tableaux vivants when they all dressed up in costume and posed in against backcloths. And we know, of course, that as well that Albert took great interest in the children's education. Uh, he worked with their tutors to devise quite a strict curriculum of lessons, both academic and practical. For instance, Albert built a floating bath which was tethered off the bay at Osborne, where he taught all the children to swim. So, you know, he was very quite a hands-on father. The Queen, as we heard, actually she preferred the company of adults rather than children. She probably spent a little bit less time with the children. Not surprising given the, her, her official duties and whatnot, but she did take her role as mother seriously. And that's to the extent that we, we find references later in their lives to her adult children feeling that she was interfering in their lives right through into adulthood. So, yeah, she certainly took her, her role as mother seriously. Obviously, um, Albert died from typhoid fever aged just 42 in 1861. And how did this affect Victoria? Well, we know that Victoria was absolutely devastated by Albert's death. Soon after his, his death, she wrote to her eldest daughter, Vicky, who was over in Germany, and she just sort of said how, how devastated she was, how without him, she was nothing. And she really felt sort of bereft without Albert's support, because he'd really been there to sort of support her in the background with all that she was doing. And she remained in deep mourning for several years, surrounded really by just her children and very close courtiers. And she just retreated from public life to the extent that there was quite a lot of disquiet amongst the political classes that the popularity of the monarchy was in danger because of her, her sort of absence from the scene. And it was only really about the mid-1860s that she starts to emerge from her seclusion, even though she's continued to wear black, of course, as, as is well known, throughout the remaining 40 years of her life. So she was in mourning really throughout her the whole of her later life. She had a small portrait of Albert, which was on the headboard of her bed, which she slept with each night. She ordered servants to continue bringing hot water into his room for his morning shave every day. And she kept his bedroom and dressing room exactly in Osborne, exactly as they had been when he died. So she was, you know, sort of trying to sort of preserve this memory of Albert in any way that she could. Did she ever find love again? Well, during the 1860s, Victoria did find companionship with one of her faithful Highland servants, John Brown. And famously in the in the film, Mrs. Brown, I mean, he is really the only person who can bring her out of this deep mourning and renew her zest for life. 
and she becomes increasingly reliant on Brown for you know sort of emotional support but also for you know he sort of almost acts as her unofficial secretary taking on a lot of the roles that Albert would previously have done and this leads to a lot of anger in the wider royal household who saw him as a sort of bit of an upstart servant and led to a lot of sort of tensions within the household and there were rumours which were spread in the media that there was a romantic relationship between Brown and the Queen and even the, some suggestions that they'd secretly married, although I've not seen any evidence that this was the case. And certainly there was, within a household circles, the Queen was uh, disparagingly described as Mrs Brown. And certainly when Brown died in 1883, the Queen was heartbroken and she started work on a eulogy to him, which she was intending to publish. And she was persuaded by some of her other courtiers not to do so, and the manuscript was destroyed. So we'll never know really what the relationship was between them. What we do know is, though, though in the, in the later 1880s, Victoria formed another close bond with another of her retainers, this time the newly appointed Indian attendant, Abdul Karim. He was one of two Indian attendants who'd been appointed soon after the Queen had been made Empress of India. He was promoted by the Queen to the role of Munshi, or teacher, and he started teaching the Queen how to speak Urdu and write in Urdu. And he started to serve as his her secretary as well, in a similar way to John Brown had done. Again, the family and retainers were appalled by this and started sort of spreading rumours about the Munshi, accusing him of being a spy and biasing the Queen against her Hindu subjects in India because he was a Muslim. But the Queen really dismisses all these complaints as being based on prejudice, particularly racial prejudice. And the Munshi actually remained in her service right through until her death in 1901 and then was unceremonially returned to India after her death. Yeah, so she did find companionship and, and support from other people from within her household after Albert's death, but certainly I don't think there was anybody who fully replaced Albert in her affections. Many of the royal marriages through English history seem to focus on acquisition of lands, titles, power. Was Victoria the first English monarch to embrace romance and love as a foundation for family life? In a sense, Victoria's marriage to Albert does follow the traditional model for royal marriages in that it's a sort of an arranged marriage, which is based on the idea of furthering European diplomacy. He's the second son of the Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld, which is a minor German state that the British are allied to. And the marriage is, is sort of arranged by King Leopold of Belgium, who's one of also one of Victoria's closest advisors. So it's in a sense, it's a traditional dynastic marriage. But what makes it unusual, of course, is that they're actually attracted to each other. So what was potentially originally conceived by Leopold as a, as a dynastic marriage was also a love match. Leopold possibly, because he knew both Victoria and Albert well, maybe knew that they would get on with each other. So he was, in a sense, putting together two people who were likely to hit it off. So it has elements of, of being novel and new and, and, and based on romance, but also has traditional elements to it too. And in Victoria and Albert's private life, and also the way that they live their life out in public and their focus on family life, they do really project a sort of quite a modern image of, of a moral middle-class family. So maybe in the way that they lived their, out their married life, they are, are new and, and, and sort of different. I guess we can sort of trace the sentimental attitude towards romantic love and family life to their relationship. And that really set the tone for Victorian families across the country thereafter. And it sounds as though, from what you said earlier, that they were more hands-on with raising the children, even though they did have assistance within the household. Very much so. So, I mean, certainly the way they projected their image in public was they wanted to sort of model themselves as being, you know, the sort of 
perfect middle class family rather than uh, you know sort of aloof aristocrats uh, you know who sort of farm their children off to nannies of course although of course they did do that but the way that they wanted to project it in public was the fact of a, a happy family life so you get lots of photographs that were taken showing Victoria and Albert and their children all together at Osborne on the terrace or you know there were newspaper references to them visiting the children at the Swiss cottage they wanted to project this image of a happy family life in which both parents were heavily involved in their children's upbringing even if the reality was possibly a little bit more similar to their predecessors in terms of there being lots of courtiers and and servants involved as well. There are other legacies of their relationship aren't there in stone in buildings can you reel off a list Andrew of uh of course, yeah. I mean, the most obvious legacies are their private residences that they built and furnished together. So Osborne House and Balmoral. The former Osborne is still largely furnished as they intended it. So it, perhaps it's the best place to understand Victoria and Albert's relationship with each other and their family life and their, you know, their love for each other. The interiors are filled with lots of objects which the couple gave to each other as birthday presents and, and love tokens. So where better to understand their relationship? But there's also things like the wider buildings on the Osborne estate, uh, including the home farm where Albert carried out his agricultural experiments and the model cottages that he built on the estate. And these all show his zeal for improvement and modern technology, which the Queen nurtured and encouraged. So you can sort of see her nurturing his interests there. And we can see, too, in things like the Great Exhibition of 1851 and the museums of South Kensington, like the V&A and the Natural History Museum, which were built with the proceeds of this exhibition. Again, something that was very dear to Albert and which the Queen encouraged him to do. So those are all, I guess, part of their legacy. And of course, the Royal Albert Hall. And um, the Royal Albert Hall, of course, as well. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Let's move on to another property now in the English heritage portfolio. And we'll stick with the Victorian era. But we're going to go up north to Doncaster in South Yorkshire. Eleanor, I understand that we're talking about several couples at this property and that many romances played out above and below stairs. So what can you tell us about these? Country houses being the large workplaces that they are, it's really quite inevitable that people would fall in love whilst working at Brodsworth and other country houses. Brodsworth really isn't an exception, particularly for the staff rather than the family members. Historically, the staff who worked at Brodsworth, um, we've got lots of examples of different couples who met, fell in love, married whilst working on site here. So gardeners, housemaids, chauffeurs, kitchen maids, lots of people found their future spouse whilst working at Brodsworth. Just to give you an example of a few of them, in the early 20th century, the cook, Martha Lockie, married the chauffeur, George Raper, and he went off to fight in the First World War. She had to leave service. Then the next cook, um, a lady called Caroline Palmer, she started as a kitchen maid, then worked her way up to cook. She fell in love and married the valet chauffeur, Alf Edwards. Other servants, some of the butlers, um, the butler John Marshall, he married the head housemaid, Fanny Rolfe at Brodsworth. 
another housemaid and parlour maid, Molly Hindle. She met her husband, Walter Nichols, because Walter was uh, stationed at Brodsworth during the Second World War. He was a signaller. His quarters were in the stable block, which is where Molly lived. They met whilst working at Brodsworth. So we've got lots and lots of different examples of different pairings. And it's been said before that the situation that people found themselves in has been described as almost the, the coming out into society for country house staff and country house servants, as they often married within their social hierarchy. So upper servants often married other upper servants and slightly lower servants within the hierarchy would marry servants on their level, which is a really interesting idea. Very interesting. And how did they meet whilst they were busy working, you know? Well, in various different ways. So a really nice example is Alf, the chauffeur, the valet and chauffeur, and Caroline Palmer, the kitchen maid, because they wouldn't normally come in contact with each other. The kitchen maid stayed in the kitchen. The valet was within the house, and when he was in, the chauffeur was obviously in the stables near the garages and things like that. However, Alf was a very keen amateur photographer, and he took photographs all over Brodsworth of other staff members, of various places in the gardens, that sort of thing. And he had to dry the negatives for his photographs, and he chose to dry the negatives in the kitchen at Brodsworth, which was one of the warmest places. So when he was hanging his negatives up in the kitchen to dry and then taking them down again, he met Caroline, the kitchen maid, which is really nice because they wouldn't have really come in contact with each other any other way. And they had a really lovely relationship and courtship and their wedding cake was baked at Brodsworth and then taken down to Northamptonshire where they got married, where Caroline was from. And we've got lots of details about them. And you can just imagine them meeting and talking and chatting because Alf had worked in a few other country houses before arriving at Brodsworth. He'd really had travelled the world, been to America and Europe with his previous employers. So I can just imagine kind of the stories and the tales and the things he would have said to impress Caroline. Um, <laughs> and she, I think she would have really enjoyed listening to what he had to say. Yeah. Um, another example is a housemaid called Gladys Phillips, and she married one of the gardeners, John Jones. Again, housemaids, gardeners wouldn't really interact very much apart from John. This is during the Second World War period, just before. Um, he was tasked as part of his duties to make flower arrangements to display within the hall and to water them. And when he was quite new at Brodsworth, he didn't know which rooms he needed to go to. He didn't know his way around. So when he went in, he met one of the housemaids, happened to be Gladys, and she showed him where he needed to go. He needed to go into Mrs. Grant Dalton's sitting room and she showed him the way and they got chatting. And then naturally, as it developed, he had to come up to the hall for other jobs and he and Gladys became friends and kind of it just happened from there, which is really lovely. And they courted for a while. They saw each other and, and met upon each other's half day off. And then when the Second World War began, John's service was actually deferred because he worked in food production, working in the kitchen garden on the estate. But he was later called up. And so it was at that point that he asked Gladys to marry him because she would receive a marriage allowance. And if anything happened to him, she'd get a war pension. So they married. And then despite being married, Gladys actually remained in service at Brodsworth, saving up the marriage allowance so that she could set up home when eventually he came back from the war. And we've got lots of the letters and telegrams and things like that that survive. So they're two really nice stories. And he did come back from the war? He did come back from the war. Yes, he came back 
And then Gladys then finished working at Brodsworth and they set up home together with the money that she had saved throughout. So the two stories that you just described, were they fairly contemporaneous or were they more spaced apart? They were quite spaced apart. So Alf and Caroline, um, they were the early part of the 20th century. Alf started working in about 1913 or so at Brodsworth. Caroline had been working there a few years beforehand. And John and Gladys were in the Second World War, so almost half a century apart. But still people meeting each other and falling in love at Brodsworth. What did people think of these romances happening at a workplace, particularly (laughs) within the staff? Is there any record of this? There's not a direct record of what I suppose professionally people thought about them. Obviously, I think their employers, the Tellersons, the Grant Dalton family, wouldn't have expected to see any of this themselves. It would have been kept very much kind of below stairs, as it were. But we know that Alf and Caroline's courtship happened against the advice of their family and against the advice of friends working at Brodsworth and even against the advice of Charles Tellerson, who owned Brodsworth. And he became involved and suggested it wasn't a good idea and they shouldn't get married. And that was because Alf had very poor health and they suggested it wouldn't be a good idea. He's not necessarily going to live very long. And they, they recommended that they didn't marry, but they did. Sadly, it was right that their married life didn't last long as Alf died in 1919, which was only three years after they had been married. So they had a very short life together. But by all accounts, from what we know, they've had a very happy courtship and marriage when they were together. And the other staff were very happy for them as well. Caroline was really good friends with the lady's maid, who later became the housekeeper, Jane Langton. And Jane stayed up late on evening sewing and embroidering all the fancy work on Caroline's trousseau. All her night dresses were sewn by the housekeeper. And as women women had to leave service when they were married, I'm sure it would have been both a really happy and sad occasion for Caroline to leave because she had friends at Brodsworth. But of course, she wanted to marry Alf, so then she had to leave service at the same time. However, occasionally, we know that sometimes romance was not always welcome, but sometimes actually had to be avoided. And we do know of a Brodsworth footman who travelled up with the Grant Daltons to their holiday home in Scotland on the Isle of Mull, which was called Quinnish House. And this particular footman was very keen to get away. He didn't want to stay at Quinnish. He couldn't wait for the break to be over because apparently one of the resident housemaids on the Isle of Mull at Quinnish was very keen on him and he was desperate not to get caught up by her, is what we've been told by one of one of his descendants. Um, so it wasn't always welcome. <laughs> I'm curious about this um, idea that if you get married, you have to leave your job, you have to leave service. Was this some sort of unwritten rule? It was expected that servants, particularly women, once they were married, they would obviously have children, set up home. It was expected they would leave service and they wouldn't stay. And that gave the chance for other servants to move up within the hierarchy, get a position, get a better job. It's not a case with male servants. Often some of the men who were employed, they married but would continue working. That did change, um, start to change in the 20th century, particularly at Brodsworth during the Second World War when a lot of the male employees went off to fight. So the women started taking on more of the men's duties. And even if they got married, as Gladys Phillips did, who we've talked about, she actually stayed working whilst she was married because there was no other option and she needed to stay. She needed to stay. She wanted to earn money and the estate 
needed the staff. I think there are occasions that we've heard where sometimes butlers and other employees didn't tell their employers that they were actually married and occasionally kept it a secret, but I don't think that happened at Brodsworth. Out of these couples who you've described, are there any mementos of their love that uh, remain at Brodsworth that people can see today? Yes, there are um, various things that survive. So Alf Edwards, the valet and chauffeur, one of his great hobbies was woodworking and carving, kind of small cigar boxes and, and pipes and wooden stools and things like that. And one of the things he carved was a good look wooden horseshoe um, shaped photograph frame for his future wife Caroline Palmer and that had a photograph inside that Alf took of her on one of their days off with a long dress with hat and gloves which is a really lovely memento and we don't know whether that was kind of an engagement gift or something like that but it still survives which is fabulous and there are lots of other kind of letters postcards photographs telegrams between these various couples which survive and are owned by their descendants And they've shared information and kind of photographs and images of them with us, which is fabulous. Within the family, though, the people who owned the house and lived in it, were there any sort of romantic stories there? Yes, there are occasions of that too happening at Brodsworth. For example, Pamela Grant Dalton, who was the daughter of Sylvia Grant Dalton, Charles Grant Dalton. Charles, her father, inherited Brodsworth in 1931. Pamela married a gentleman called Ron Williams, and that was apparently love at first sight. So Pamela was daughter of the household. Ron Williams was involved with the local police constabulary, and he came to the back door of Brodsworth, apparently on a visit to check out something, and Pamela saw him through a window, and apparently that was that, head over heels, love (laughs) at first sight. And they later got married. They moved to Gibraltar together, where Ron had to go for work, for his police work before coming back to Brodsworth, and they lived in what used to be the head gardener's house on the estate. Classic man in uniform trope. Yep, classic man in uniform. And then much earlier than that, in the 19th century, and we have Peter Tellison, who was the son of Charles Sabine, who built Brodsworth. Mm -hmm. And Peter married a lady called Elizabeth MacDougall. And Elizabeth was Scottish. She was actually employed at the hall, so she was a member of staff. So she was a governess and more probably later a companion to the lady of the house, Georgiana Tellison, and the two Tellison daughters, Aileen and Constance. And a governess is uh, effectively the in-house teacher, isn't it, for the children? Yeah, effectively the in-house teacher for the children. And then when they got slightly older, kind of companion to them, chaperone, that sort of thing. And she, Elizabeth, married the eldest son of Brodsworth Hall, which which was quite a thing. And we don't know why that was. She was a little bit older than Peter when they got married. And she was effectively a member of staff, although the position of companion had a higher status than others. And so she was possibly, by that point, thought of more like a family friend than an employee, perhaps. But she was known as Bessie. Peter called her Bessie. And it was perhaps a kind of slow blossoming romance. And they married in 1883. And Peter gave her a volume of poems by Alfred Lord Tennyson as a present And we know from various archive documents that her favourite flower was a rose. She described her personal motto as true to the end. So obviously a very kind of constant, caring sort of person. And she described her ideals of happiness as being competency, love and health. So she sounds like a really lovely person for Peter to have married. Wasn't there another Tellison, Charles Tellison? Did he have a romance with somebody? 
Yes, one of Peter's brothers, Charles, he married a lady called Constance Mary Phillips, and she was the daughter of the local reverend, Reverend Phillips. And like many of the marriages that happened at Brodsworth, we don't know exactly how the courtship happened, but the families were very much in close contact. The Tellersons attended church regularly, various social calls, village events, so it's really not a surprise that love kind of blossomed between Charles and Constance Mary. And they had a really quite long and happy marriage. And in 1910, they celebrated their silver wedding anniversary. And they had a three-day celebration on the estate for family, for friends, for villagers, and with lots of different entertainments. And it was it was a great party. So is Broadsworth an outlier for producing so many couples? Not really. I don't think so. I think lots of young people moving to work at country houses, kind of lots of new faces, lots of new friends to have. I think it would have been obviously very hard work, but quite exciting maybe for people. Lots of camaraderie between your colleagues. I don't think it's surprising that many people found love whilst working below stairs at Brodsworth. And indeed, Brodsworth is just one example. There's lots more examples of people falling in love at other country houses, including other houses that are in the care of English heritage as well. Indeed. Well, let's shift our attention to another property that's in the care of English heritage, Rest Park. This is a country house in Bedfordshire in the east of England, where our next stories of romance come from. Um, It's not from the Georgian heyday, though. It's actually from the First World War. What can you tell us about these stories, Andrew? Yes, well, I think, as you said, we're talking here about the period of Rest Park's use as a hospital during the First World War. And we've known from previous podcasts that the house served as an auxiliary hospital from September of 1914 through until September of 1916, when sadly the hospital was closed after a serious fire. And there were about 1,600 men passed through the hospital in all, around 200 patients at any one time. And pretty much the whole of the house was taken over as a hospital during this period. Uh, What sort of love stories are, are associated with Rest being this hospital? Well, there's a number of stories I could touch upon, but I think I'll pick on just one. And that's the the story of Daniel McKinnon McLean, who was one of the wounded servicemen who was recuperating at the hospital. And Evelyn Hughes, who was the still room maid. That was means she was working in the still room where you made up the medicines and also sort of like cordials. You did sort of pickling of, of fruit and vegetables, and those sort of things. So she was working in the service wing, effectively. So Daniel is born in Truro. He joins the army in 1914 and he goes out to the Western Front with the 2nd Battalion of the Black Watch. But unfortunately, he's injured in November of 1914 and has to have his leg amputated out in the field in, in France. And then he's sent to Rest Hospital to recuperate from his injuries And it's well convalescing there that he gets to know not only the doctors and nurses, but also some of the house staff. This includes Evelyn Hughes and her sister as well. Daniel and Evelyn fall in love during their time at rest. We don't know exactly how it was they came to be in the same place. Maybe Evelyn had to bring some of the medicines round to the ward, or maybe he came upon her on the terrace or whatever while he was out there sitting and recuperating. But anyhow, they, they, they met and fell in love and then they married in Islington in September of 1917 and then he and Evelyn settled in Canterbury in North London where he worked as a civil servant and then later they build a a house in Edgware which they actually called Rest which is Hmm. uh, gives a direct link back to the site 
And today in the grounds of the of the estate, there's actually a, a bench dedicated to their memory, which was uh, put in place there by the, some of their descendants. And it actually has an inscription on it, which says, says, during the Great War, Rest Park became a military hospital. Our maternal grandparents, Daniel McKinnon McLean and Evelyn Annie Hughes, first met here at that time. They had three daughters, the eldest of which was Mavis, our mum. So there's a bench in the grounds now which you can see which you know is a lasting legacy of the of relationship that Daniel and that Evelyn forged all the way back in 1914. Yes that's a nice um, visual reminder for visitors isn't it really a real genuine personal human story there. We've got another property that we can talk about Andrew after Rest Park, Brodsworth Hall and Osborne. It's our fourth property. It's Eltham Palace in south-east London. And there's two separate couples we're going to talk about connected to the site. But they actually knew each other, these couples. So the first couple is the Courtolds. Just remind us who these people were. Yes, well, the Courtolds are the builders and constructors of Elton Palace. They are fabulously wealthy socialites who took on the lease of Elton Palace in 1933 and they set about transforming what had been a sort of ruined raw residence into a state-of-the-art modern house with all the latest mod cons. Just to give you a little bit of background into the couple themselves, well Stephen is a member of the extremely wealthy Courtauld textile dynasty. This company had made its fortune by producing a type of artificial silk called rayon and Stephen didn't actually play an active part in the business, but he owned a large number of shares in the company, which he could use to pursue his many sort of cultural and philanthropic interests that he had. Now, Virginia, or Ginny as she's usually known, she's quite different. She's born in Romania with an Italian father and a Hungarian mother. And when she met Stephen, she was recently separated from her first husband, who was an Italian aristocrat. Her and Stephen met on holiday in the Italian Alps in the summer of 1919. And it was four years later that they got married after Stephen had paid the Vatican so that uh, the previous marriage could be annulled. So they had to wait until (laughs) Virginia's previous marriage had been annulled before they could get married. And we're talking about the uh, sort of 1920s and 30s period now, aren't we? We are, yes. I mean, they met in 1919 and they married in 1923. So how would you characterise their relationship? Well, I mean, I've seen it described very much as a marriage of opposites. Now, if you look at Stephen, he's very sort of serious and reserved. He's very intellectual and sort of, you know, bookish. And there's suggestions that he was badly affected by his experiences of the First World War, which made him sort of, you know, quite moody and, and reserved. Ginny, on the other hand, is completely different. She's the sort of life and soul of the party. She's got a lively Italian temperament. She's vivacious. She's always full of laughter. She's impulsive, chic, and a little bit naughty at times. And she has a, for instance, she's got a snake tattooed just above her right ankle, which was reputedly a a dare when she was a teenager. So, you know, you get the idea of her being very impulsive, Stephen being very sort of controlled, very controlled and reserved. Yeah. But despite these differences, they're a very devoted couple. Stephen loved making grand gestures of his of his love for his wife. So, for instance, as a wedding present, he bought her a pet lemur, Mahjong, from the pet department at Harrods. And then for one of her birthdays in 1927, he built her an ice rink in the heart of London, which was the London Ice Club, which was a, a large private members club with an ice rink, an art deco style restaurant and bar 
which uh, hosted many glamorous events where Ginny was able to be hostess. So he likes sort of, you know, sort of really providing him with these really lavish gifts to keep her entertained and to sort of show his love for her. To love lavishly. Very Um, much so, yeah. But they liked to um, travel and entertain as well, didn't they? They certainly did. I mean, we've heard in a previous episode, didn't we, that that they spent many of their winters crossing the globe by cruise liner or on their steam yacht, the Virginia. And in the mid-1930s, they visited a different continent each year. You know, one year they were in Latin America, another year they they crossed Africa, another year they were in Southeast Asia. And they took lots of cine film and kept scrapbooks of their various trips. So we got lots of evidence for the great time that they were having. But they also love to entertain when they're at home. So at Elton Palace, they're effectively keeping open house. They've got friends always welcome to come along and bring whoever else they want with them. In fact, you could argue that the house was designed for entertaining because it's got lots of characteristics that you'd associate more often with a, a high-class hotel. Things like ensuite bathrooms for each of the guest bedrooms. They've got underfloor heating. They've got a pay telephone in the entrance hall. You've got piped music from a gramophone, which is piped through speakers all around the house. So you've got lots of sort of features that you might expect to find in a in a hotel but not really in a in an ordinary house and even during the second world war Ginny's, you know writing letters to friends and family you know sort of pleading with them to come and visit them and and spend time staying with them at elton because she just loves to have people around her and entertain all the time and of course elton was the couple's home a labor of love for the courtolds who sort of transformed it but they had help from this other couple that they knew so who was this couple well, I think here we're speaking about uh, the architects, John Seeley and Paul Paget, and they're responsible for building Elton Palace in the 1930s for the Courtaulds. John Seeley's uh, the eldest surviving son of the first Baron Mottiston, so he's a, a minor aristocrat, and he's studying architecture at Trinity College, Cambridge, when he comes across Paul Paget, who's the son of a bishop, and Paul's a very extrovert character. John's a lot more sort of studious and reserved. But Paul doesn't have any architectural training, whereas John did. But that meant they could form a a, a sort of perfect partnership. John is the architect. Paul is the one who sort of cultivates relationships with clients by buttering them up. So it really worked as a team, really, to start their architectural practice up. And they were only very young when they they worked on the Courtauld's project in the 1930s. They would only have been in their early 30s at this point. But obviously more than just business partners. We certainly believe so. I mean, they were known to all their friends as the partners and they were completely inseparable. They not only worked together... Their office at 41 Clough Fair in London was also their home. And as we heard before, they'd met while they were studying in Cambridge. And after they met, Paul Paget, he later described their relationship as being a sort of marriage of two minds. They virtually became one person. And the story of how they set up their their partnership, their business partnership in in March of 1926 is, is quite an interesting one. They went out for a nice lunch at this hostelry called the Mitre in Hampton Court. And during the lunch, John asked Paul if he would be his partner. Now, of course, you could read this in two ways. Did it mean a personal partner or professional partner or both? It, it, it certainly opened to question. But they were known to all the people around them as the partners is the way they were described. When did they start working for the court olds on Eltham? And what did they actually produce there that is worthy of a visit? They started work in, in 1934. The Courtauld's had acquired the lease in 1933. So the building work started in 34. So you can only assume, but probably 
Celia and Paget were taken on as as architects pretty soon after the Courtauld's acquired the site. And their brief was really to create a stylish modern home for, for Stephen and Ginny, which had to incorporate surviving elements of the medieval palace, in particular the Great Hall, which was built by Edward IV and, and was the one sort of surviving bit of the of the palace that was still there and still largely intact. And that's you know quite a difficult job to answer, sort of meld old and new, whilst they've got to keep their clients happy, the courtholds, but they've also got the Ministry of Works watching over their shoulder to make sure that they're not damaging any of the archaeology. So it's a it's a really difficult balancing act for them. But what they produced is uh, you know is an Art Deco masterpiece. It's got this restrained, what's been described as Renaissance, as in Christopher Wren style exterior, which complements the medieval hall. But the interior is is extremely lavish and modern, and it exudes all the sort of luxury of the 1930s with all the sort of mod cons of the 1930s, like a centralised vacuum cleaner, gas-fired central heating throughout and so forth, electric fires in the bedrooms, underfloor heating that I mentioned before. So you've got this restrained exterior, which doesn't clash with what's left of the medieval building, but the interior is incredibly stylish and, and modish. Now, you said that we think that they were a gay couple, which obviously at the time would have been illegal. So is there any really good evidence that they definitely were this gay couple? Well, in a sense, we'll probably never know exactly the nature of their personal relationship because these things just weren't written down at the time. As you say, it was illegal. And so you didn't openly acknowledge that you were a couple because it could have got you into trouble. And the attitudes towards same-sex love at the time were different than they are today. But I think there's little doubt that they loved each other deeply. They both referred to each other, as I said, as the partner. And they lived together in this shared house. And one of the really unusual features there is that there was a twin bathroom. They had two baths in the same bathroom. So they could both have a soak at the same time and chat about their business affairs or whatever, whatever else they wanted to talk about whilst they were in the bathroom. We also know that they had this purpose-built shack built at their house on the Isle of Wight, Mottiston Manor, which was Lord Mottiston's house, which uh, John Seeley inherited when the first Lord Mottiston died. And this shack they built, they used to work in it when they were on the Isle of Wight, but they also slept there in bunk beds while their guests and other members of the household all slept at the main house. So they would they would sort of shack up together in the shack whilst uh, the other family members and guests slept elsewhere. And all their friends referred to them as the partners as well. It wasn't just how they described themselves. So we can sort of see it as, as a shorthand to sort of reflect both their personal and professional relationship. Did they live long and happy lives together? Well, they continued to live and work together at uh, at Cloth Fair until John Seeley sadly died quite young in 1963. And we know he's buried in the chapel garden at Westminster Abbey. And there's a niche in the wall of one of the houses in a little cloister. And there's a little statue of St. Catherine there with a memorial to him which actually reads John Mottiston, because that was his name at this point, he'd become Lord Mottiston. This is a sign of love and sadness, PEP 1966. And of course, PEP is Paul Edward Paget. So, you know, it's a sort of final sign of the, of their love for each other there, expressed in, in stone. Obviously, uh, Paul Paget leaves these initials in stone. Does he go on to find love after that? In a sense, he does, yes, because, you know, he continues in his architectural practice with the help of other architects from within his firm right through until the uh, the 1970s. But in 1971, when he's age 70, he 
forms a, a friendship with and then marries the children's writer Verily Anderson. This was you know, a marriage which gave both of them companionship in old age. And he retired with Verily and her children to Templewood in North, Norfolk. This was a house that um, the partners had built for Paul Paget's uncle many years previously. And they lived there until Paul's death in 1985. So, yes, he did find love again in later life. So as we sort of begin to round out our discussion, aside from the people who lived and worked at the sites we've mentioned, are there any other signs of love and romance that visitors can look out for during a visit to any English heritage site? Eleanor, do you want to start us off? Yes, there are, Charles. There's lots of different kind of objects, particularly sculptures and paintings that visitors can look at as they're visiting our sites that are linked to love and romance. So a good, a really good example is, is at Brodsworth, the, the sculpture collection, which depicts various gods and goddesses which are associated with love. For example, everyone's heard of Venus, the Roman goddess of love, of beauty and fertility. And there are lots of different depictions of Venus at Brodsworth. So there's a really lovely sculpture which is called The Birth of Venus by James Pradier. And that shows Venus um, in a large shell alongside a little Cupid, um, which is the only marble version of that sculpture that's known to exist. And by showing Venus in what is a very large oyster shell, it kind of reflects the myth of Venus arising from the waves, as it were, so from the sea. We also have other thing, copies such as the very famous statue of Venus and the antique statue, the Venus de Medici. There's a marble copy of that at Brodsworth, a Victorian version. Other gods such as Cupid. Everyone knows Cupid with his little bow and arrows and, and being kind of a, a little tricksy little god, um, the god of desire. Cupid was the son of Mercury, who was the god's messenger, and he was also the son of Venus. And at Brodsworth, we've got a really quite active sculpture of two cupids that are fighting together quite aggressively over a human heart, which is on, on the floor of the sculpture. And the two cupids depict the two characters, Eros and Antiros, who are two brothers who fight about love um, and the contrast between earthly love and spiritual love and which one is going to overcome the other. There's lots of movement within the sculpture that visitors can see. One of the cupids is trying to stop the other from getting the heart. Their wings are fluttering and standing out. One of quiver of arrows is lying forgotten on the floor. The tale of the two cupids, Eros and Anti-Eros, is also one that can be found out in the story discovered at Bolsover Castle, another English heritage site in Derbyshire. Because in 1634, King Charles I and his wife Henrietta Maria um, visited Bolsover to attend a masque, an entertainment arranged by the owner William Cavendish. Um, and that involved kind of acting and dancing and music and, and a play set to music. And that was written by the playwright Ben Johnson. And the play was called Love's Welcome. And that features the two Cupids, Eros and Antiros, who were discussing the nature of perfect love and what perfect love entails as a way of impressing Charles I and Henrietta Maria, saying that their royal love is effectively the most perfect kind that can exist. <laughs> Another wow. goddess is Psyche. She's got kind of quite a sad tale in that Psyche was, she represents the personification of the soul. And she was apparently incredibly, incredibly beautiful beautiful enough to have made Venus jealous and to also have captivated the heart of Cupid, Cupid himself. And apparently Venus told Cupid, because Venus was jealous of Psyche, 
to only let Psyche fall in with very unsuitable, very dangerous men. However, instead of doing that, Cupid hid Psyche away and he, Cupid, visited Psyche in total darkness until at one point Psyche lit a lamp and she discovered that her visitor was Cupid and he goes away but she tries to find him and eventually they are married. And the story of Cupid and Psyche was very, very popular in sculpture and paintings in the late 18th century and in the 19th century. And at Broadsworth, there is a sculpture of Psyche called Psyche with Butterfly, because a butterfly is also an image of the soul. And Psyche is hiding the butterfly, the soul, and she's holding it in her hands, trying to make sure that it doesn't escape. So I'm hoping that love doesn't flutter and fly away from her like a butterfly. So there's lots of little clues um, that visitors can see if they look carefully at some of the objects that are on display. Are there any other sites, um, Andrew, where we can get a sense of the love that uh, has been expressed through art at properties? We could return to Osborne, of course, and the, as I mentioned before, the number of gifts that Victoria and Albert gave to each other, which are on display at the house. There's, there's an enormous numbers of different statues, paintings, sculptures in both the house and the grounds that are effectively love tokens to each other. If I was to describe something else, I mean, there's, there's actually a, we've recently acquired at Rest Park a, a mourning ring, which contains a lock of hair of Jemima Crewe, the first wife of Henry Duke of Kent. And these sort of type of mourning rings where you sort of incorporate a, a lock of hair within them were, were a very common feature in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And they're really an expression of the sort of undying love of somebody for, for someone who's departed. That's hopefully is going to go on display soon and is a really nice piece. And we know there was a number of these mourning rings within the uh, Rest Park collection. Sadly, the others have now dispersed elsewhere. And we know particularly that the Duke of Kent, I mean, he had a, quite a sad life. He had his first wife died in her early 50s and then of his around 10 or 11 children only like one survived him so he has monument in the grounds which he erected in memory of his first wife and also he erected memorials in the gardens to his children and some of his children as well and of course in the in the nearby mausoleum at Flitton there are elaborate tombs to some of his children that have died so memorials to sort of loss of love of love lost rather than love found sadly. Speaking of losing things, is there anything that's in the English Heritage Collection, love-related, which has been dug up? It was archaeology. Yes, Andrew's just mentioned one ring, but there is another ring that we look after and visitors can see from Corbridge Roman site upon Hadrian's Wall. And that's a gold finger ring, which has a Greek inscription, which I won't try to pronounce, but it translates as the love token of Polemius. So that indicates it would have been a very expensive item. It's made of 12 grams of gold and would have been a very particular, specially commissioned piece for Polemius for the owner. And that's really interesting because the idea of kind of love, religion, magic, belief, all of that was interlinked and intertwined Mm. in Roman life. So it might have been more than just Polemius, a love token saying it's a statement of his love or if it was given to him or something like that but could have been seen to have almost magical properties to aid the search for love whenever it was worn. Mm. Queen Victoria's letters to Prince Albert um, survive. Are there any other Valentine's Day cards or letters in the collection? Yes, we have one rather unusual Valentine held in the Broadsworth collection. Um, And it's not a love letter 
in the traditional way one would expect a love letter to be. Rather, it's a comedy Valentine, comedy Valentine's Day poem, which is written and sent by Peter Tellison to his parents around 1864. And this was when Peter was away at school at Eton. And he wrote home to ask for some pocket money. He wanted food to be sent, such as potted meat, tongue, that sort of thing, and to see what's happening at home, to ask how his brother's doing at school. So it's rather that Peter was lovesick. I think he was rather homesick when he wrote this Valentine. So he sent that to show his love for his parents and his family, which is a really nice thing to have. (laughs) Have any English heritage sites inspired love in today's visitors? So do we have past connecting to present in that way? Yes, we do. There are lots of examples and visitors have told us of people who kind of visit various English heritage sites throughout their lives at different occasions because they've been proposed to at Brodsworth. They've gone on first dates at Brodsworth. Only recently at Christmas, there was one proposal at Brodsworth where the couple with their child visited Father Christmas and as well as giving a present to the child, Father Christmas also produced an engagement ring um, and (laughs) gave it to the couple, which was really lovely. And she did say yes. Very nice. And a few sites uh, can be hired as wedding venues, can't they, Andrew? They certainly can. I mean, just off the top of my head, I know of weddings taking place certainly at Rest Park at Osborne and at Elton Palace. I'm sure there are others as well that I I don't know of. But uh, yes, there are a number of our sites. And I've also heard of people proposing a number of our sites, the obvious ones, places like Stonehenge and Tintagel and Whitby Abbey, but also some of our smaller sites. You know, people will always find somewhere that's meaningful to them to express their love for each other. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, 30 years on from his death, we'll discuss Derek Jarman, blue plaque recipient, artist, activist, and filmmaker. You might find some of them when you watch them initially a bit frustrating. You think, well, what's happening? Where is this going? But he's just not feeling bound by conventional narrative at all. He had this wonderful phrase that, you know, he said, life's more fun when you don't know what's coming next. Thanks for listening. See you next time.